Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you. Um, I get the privilege of taking a break from uh, John right before Easter and, you know, doing a little refresher sermon on this phrase that we repeat often, that all of life is all for Jesus. And so today I want to start by reminding you of something that your teacher said growing up, probably. They said there's, there's no bad questions. <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> there are some bad questions. A few years ago, I got asked a bad question. Someone asked me, who is your favorite worship leader? And they started naming all the like famous bands and stuff. You know, all the people with the hair and the skinny jeans and all that. <laughs> and I was tired, and I was a little grumpy. And I was like, I'm not answering that. And then, then, I, then I told, I kind of a snarky way, I said, look, it doesn't matter who my favorite worship leader is because I'm not the one being worshiped. Ooh, this. I was kind, I was kind of a jerk. But then I was driving home, and it popped into my mind. I actually do have a favorite worship leader. His name is Len. This man can't sing. He can't play the guitar. The only music I've ever seen him interact with is some very vague whistling. And I met him about 20 years ago, and his worship leading changed my life. You see, 20 years ago, I was a young, zealous knucklehead who had just become a believer. And I loved worshiping God. I loved gathering with God's people on Sundays. And so I wanted more than three hours a week of serving God, of worshiping God. So I said, what if I could like become a pastor or a missionary? So I started to try to do that. I got hired at a missions agency, and then I got hired as an intern. The missions agency was going to have me doing one job, but because of budgetary issues, they said, you've got to be a janitor. I said, that's all right. Well, at least I'm still working for the church. I'm an intern. That's just like a step below the pastor. That's what... <laughs> Turns out their definition of an intern was basically a glorified janitor. So I was spending all of my days doing janitorial work, and I was the worst janitor the world has ever seen. There was a leak that was dripping, and I, through my work, turned it into a flooded parking lot. <laughs> Every mirror I touched had this white streak across it because I used the wrong solution to like clean the mirrors. And there were even rumors that some women were sneaking across the street to the gas station bathroom just so they did not have to be in a bathroom that I was cleaning and overseeing. I was terrible. And the reason I was terrible is because I was phoning it in. All my energy was going towards like the college ministry stuff that I was leading. And I was, I was like hurrying through my work so I could prepare a Bible study. And I was just doing terrible work and then I met Len. He'd come to the United States as a refugee. He'd been a businessman. 
but he couldn't do that work here for a number of different reasons. And so he started to work as a janitor. And watching his life showed me some incredible things about God and about good work. His work was excellent. He assassinated every piece of dust with his vacuum. He made a room look like a realtor was staging it at the end of the day. And I would engage him because his work was so unique. And I would ask him why he was doing what he was doing. And he just basically said, I'm worshiping God. He deeply loved Jesus and saw all of life as an opportunity to worship God. When he stepped into a kitchen to mop the floors and looked over the very tiles on the floor, you would think that that was stained glass. And he was in a holy sanctuary where he was worshiping God. He would grab his mop and he would hold it with the same reverence and intentionality that Brandon holds a guitar. He would dip it into a bucket of soapy water where he would begin to baptize the floor with pristine cleanliness and dramatize the day that Jesus was going to return and restore all things. His mirrors were immaculate. He cleaned mirrors well because he did not want the face of someone made in God's image to be obscured. He worshiped God even when he cleaned the toilets. Many of us, we kneel when we worship, but he would kneel down and clean the toilets. And he saw that work as a sacred work, not a menial task, but a serious task because he knew that God is a protector. And the work he was doing was the work of microbiological spiritual warfare, (laughs) where he would kill salmonella and E. coli and things that were intending to harm people created in God's image. And with every spray of bleach, he was the extension of God's hand of protection. All day long, he worshiped God, and he showed me what it was like to worship God, not just on the three hours we have on Sunday morning, but during the other 165 hours during the week, what it's like to encounter and to worship God. He was the best worship leader I've ever known because he showed me how to worship during the rest of the week. And I imagine that many of you in this room As we say, all of life is all for Jesus. We say, all of life matters. You you resonate with it, but when you go into your work, you wonder, how can this be a moment of encountering God and worshiping him? There's a longing to step off the hamster wheel of trying to find the perfect job, the perfect house, the perfect church, the perfect small group, the perfect friends, and then worship but to say where I'm at right now. Can it be reimagined? Can it be transformed into a sanctuary of worship? So that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we do that? How do we press into that? And over the next several months, you're going to see we're going to be curating resources. We're going to be having different opportunities to not just answer the question of, is all of life all for Jesus? But how do we actually live that out in our daily lives? And so today we're starting with that. Today we're looking at Romans 12, 
This passage where, where Paul is going to be our tour guide. He's going to be our worship leader. And like Len, he's going to show us how to worship God in the other 165 hours. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, or holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's going on here? The book of Romans doesn't just start at chapter 12. Like most books, they don't just start at a random chapter. But for 11 chapters, Paul has been talking about all of the amazing things that Jesus has done. All of the amazing benefits of, of knowing Jesus, how we are free and rescued from sin, the forgiveness that comes from God. We're adopted as children. Even when we were God's enemies, he made us his own. He died for us. A love that's so strong and unshakable that nothing can separate us from it. That even when we were so far away and it didn't seem like we had any prospects of knowing God, he brought us together. He reconciled us. And over and over again in the book of Romans, he's talking about what Jesus has done. And then in chapter 11, he erupts into this big song of worship. And then when you get to chapter 12, he says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, in other words, in light of all of that amazing stuff that Jesus has done for you, let me tell you how to respond. He goes on to say, how do we respond? He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifice in our day, this is kind of like a, a word that's metaphorical. It's about that, like, you know, the the athlete who's running those extra laps and stuff. But in those days, it's not a metaphor. Like animals and stuff are dying. They're like, that's how they worshiped. That was, they didn't go to like worship services like we do. They went to like sacrifice in the temple. All the religions of that day did. If you said you had a religion that didn't have a sacrifice, it was strange. It was not a real religion. So when he's saying offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He is speaking the language of worship, that we are, this is how you worship God. And, and what does he say? He doesn't say that they are to make sacrifices. He doesn't say, go bring your animal or the agricultural product and bring that to the temple as your act of devotion to God. He doesn't say to make a sacrifice. He says to be a sacrifice. In other words, you're not putting some animal on the altar to be sacrificed. You are climbing up there. And Paul deliberately uses the word body here. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Not just your vague spiritual stuff, but your bodies. And what he's doing here in using the language of body is he's, he's, he's using the language of all of life. All of life matters. All of life is an opportunity to worship God. The very stuff you do in the body 
That is the thing you do to worship. What do we do in the body? We, we lift, we plan, we build, we clean, we sleep, we train. All of these are opportunities to worship Jesus in light of the incredible things he's done for us. Consider your hands. Your hands, they're, they're, they build, they comfort, they organize. You got fingers that type emails. And that, those fingers typing emails are just as much or can be just as much worship as Brandon and his fingers on the keyboard right here. Consider your vocal cords. We, we open our mouths and we, uh, every day and we deploy words that clarify and command and ask questions. And we can use those very words, those vocal cords, as opportunities to worship God in the 165 hours that we are not here just as much as when we are singing to him for all that he has done for us. The right response is that we worship him and three hours is not enough time to worship. We need every bit of those 168 hours and still we don't have enough to worship a God like that. So as you go through your week, whether it's a desk or a kitchen table or a park bench or a bench press, all of these things have the potential to be an altar of worship where you place your life as a living sacrifice and in some way encounter God, live for God, worship God in response to what he has done for you. So what does that look like? I know sometimes we get really excited about that, but we don't know how to actually do that when in the middle of the day, you're just punching away at the computer and you're just, just holding yourself back, back from not cussing somebody out. And that's probably the highest bar that you can set for yourself. <laughs> what does it look like to show up in a way that Len showed up and to worship God in all of life? Well, the first thing I want to point to is that we need to re-narrate the mundane. We need to re-narrate the mundane. So often, the mundane aspects of life, the emails, the little planning conversations, the stuff that shows up on your to-do list can feel dry and meaningless and void of God's presence because it's being narrated by a false and destructive story. And what... Paul's inviting us to here is to renew our minds, to re-narrate the things that we experience on a daily basis, and to re-narrate them, and therefore it will transform us into people who live lives that are, that are a pleasing fragrance to God, that are filled with deep meaning. Now, you're, you're probably thinking like, okay, language of narrator. I, I don't have a narrator just floating around describing my life. One of my favorite movies is uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Who's seen that in here? Yeah, I love that movie. Because uh, it's got Will Ferrell in it, and suddenly he's just uh, this boring dude going about his day, and all of a sudden he starts hearing the voice of a narrator. Like he's brushing his teeth, and the narrator's like, and then he brushed his teeth 42 times, right? And um, he realizes 
that he is in a character of, in the story. And not only that, but the author is trying to figure out what to do with him and trying to kill off this character. So he's really nervous and he goes trying to like look for whoever the author is and find a way to not have this author kill him off. And that seems kind of wild, but the reality is, is that we are all living within a story. We are all characters in a story and it is God's story. Whether you know it or not, you're living within God's story. But often there are other stories that are narrating our life, that are giving meaning to the day in, day out stuff. Mike Goheen, um, a friend of mine, a, a professor, he says, um, to be human means to embrace a basic story through which we understand the world and course and our course through it. This does not mean that we as individuals necessarily are conscious of the story that we're living out of, but it has a molding effect on our life. It shapes our thoughts and our actions. Whether you know it or not, there's some story, some narrative that is shaping and framing how you act in the world. It's giving meaning to your moments. And if it's the biblical story, it can infuse it with wonder and an opportunity for worship. But if it's not the biblical story, it's a narrator who's trying to kill you off like they're doing in that movie. And that's why Paul says here, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, what does it mean, don't be conformed to this world? He's not saying the physical material world is bad, but this idea of the world is more of like the age, the, the cultural moment of the age that they're living in. It's not a rejection of physical creation, but it's like the harmful ideologies the harmful thought patterns, the harmful value systems that are shaping and forming people's lives and are basically becoming the narrative, the story that's defining them. It's dictating the way that they spend their time and dictating the meaning of their moments. So who are some of these false narrators in our culture that are like over your shoulder narrating your daily life? One of them is the, the narrator of status. There's a story of status in this world that says, if you climb the ladder, if you get the, the letters behind your name, if people see you, if you live in a certain neighborhood, that's where true life is found. It says that all of life is about being important. Now, if you take my friend, the janitor, and me when I was working as a janitor, if that's the story that's narrating our life, our work is going to have no meaning because we live in a culture that unfortunately doesn't value custodial work and the work of your hands. It values like people at Google who like play ping pong all day, right? But it doesn't value that. And if that's the story that's narrating your life, then your work will be meaningless. The same for us as well. It's going to rob us it's going to rob us of our time. It's going to rob us of our life. Parents are going to spend less time with their children as they keep trying to climb the ladder to get status. Students are going to miss out on what it means to, to follow Jesus in their, their years because they're just trying to get as many merits as they possibly can. 
And it says all of life is about being important. Another narrator, narrator is the narrator of comfort that says all of life is about ease. Just get, work it barely as hard as you can to pay for all of your subscriptions to the entertainment that you need and to go on the vacations that you want to and to just have an easygoing life. Now, if you're Len, or if you were me working as a janitor, that story is insufficient because that's hard work. And if you are living in the story of ease, if that's the narrator for your life, if that's speaking meaning over the tasks that show up on your list, then anything that looks like hard work is gonna feel meaningless, and you're just gonna keep moving on from job to job until you find something that's easy and it's not out there. <laughs> the narrator of money. All of life is about my bank account. If I can just get the stuff, the possessions, if I can just get to this number, that's what gives meaning to life. I don't think Len or I combined were paid enough to fully like pay the bills and so if that's the case, then your work's going to feel meaningless until you hit that number. But let me tell you, that number is going to keep going up and up and up. And your identity will be wrapped up in how much you have. And instead of having possessions, you will be possessed by your possessions rather than spending your days being possessed by the beauty and the glory of God who's given you the privilege to hold the mop in your hand, to hold the calculator in your hand, and to step into a sacred place of worship with your life. But the gospel narrates life differently. It says that all of life is all for Jesus. And so there is this call to not just be passively conformed, shaped, pushed into the mold of these voices and narrators, but to renew your mind, to have this internal transformation by renewing and refreshing and re-narrating the very experiences, the very tasks on your list, to tell yourself a better story, the biblical story, which gives meaning to every aspect of life. What does this look like? It looks like the janitor who says that, that this work is about microbiological warfare to protect people made in God's image. It's about the people who say emails are about cultivating the gift of language for a blessing to others. Sleeping, even sleeping, is an embodied act that says, I trust God, he's in control. Parenting becomes the sacred calling of joining God and forming his masterpiece of an image bearer and ushering them into adulthood. Math homework. I know the college students in here, they're always talking about the math homework. This is discovering the order that God embedded in the world so that one day you can use it to bring more order into the world, into the places of chaos. Okay, so what does this look like? Like, okay, how do I actually do that? Well, I want to encourage us that it's not just about going into your day and just trying harder. 
Just, I just need to believe more that this is important. <laughs> but, but what I want to encourage you is to actually shape daily liturgies, little moments in the day that remind you of the truth, that re-narrate the very tasks on your list, and that provide space to encounter God. And you're like, oh, you just use the word liturgy. That's a weird word, right? It's like, some, to some it brings to mind like vague, weird monk stuff. It's like robes and incense and like religious leaders dressed like Liberace, like that's what comes to mind, right? But really what it is, liturgy is just how you structure and order a worship service. It's your intentional pattern of worship. And what I want to say is, is that in the, your day, to create moments of worship, spaces where you encounter God, not where you escape, but where you encounter God in the midst of your day. You say, I don't have time for that. Well, if they give people cigarette breaks wherever you're at, you've got time for that, right? Because it's just these little moments. Now, think about the way that we do corporate worship up here. Like, Brandon doesn't just come up here and just freestyle it. He's intentional. He's thoughtful. When we preach up here, we don't just, like, flip open to a verse in the Bible and just say, hey, let's give it our best shot. But there's some intention and forethought into what it should look like. And I want to encourage you to have that intention and forethought to create moments of worship in your day that shape you and that renew your mind in the biblical story. You want me to give, give some examples? Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk afterwards. I'll give them to you. Um, all right. I'll give you a couple of these. These are from people in our congregation. There's someone um, who, the way that they do their task list is they have their tasks on one side of the page, but then on every other, right, right next to the task, they write what aspect of God's character they want to reflect as they do that task. There's another person. This is one of my favorite people in the world. She has a... Liturgy of failure. You see, she is, uh, can often be shaped by the false narrator of identity and image. And so she feels like she has to do everything perfect. So she builds into her week moments to in do things she's terrible at so that she can fail in the presence of God. So she'll do like ultimate Frisbee and act like she's just game and just like throw that Frisbee into the ground and just be really bad at Frisbee and never apologize for it <laughs> or power lifting or she's got a number of these things. And then what she does is after each of those experiences, she gets alone with God and reaffirms her identity in Christ. It's this liturgy of failure. There's another guy at the church. He's got a shutdown liturgy. He is... He struggles with having his work shaped by the narrator of success. And when 4.30 comes around when he's supposed to end his day and be with his family, he has a hard time pulling away from his work. And he's working from home right now. So what he's done is he's set up on his phone and an alarm goes off at 4.30. But it's not just an alarm. It's a written, it's, it's a recorded prayer that he has where he's thanking God for the work of that day. 
and asking God to help him leave it there and to not miss the moments with his family and his kids. And he hears that and he reads some scripture and then he, 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 he like changes shirts into a fun shirt as a way of like putting on the uniform of parenting <laughs> and he steps away from the work. I have one, I have one that I do pretty much uh, anytime I teach, I teach mul- different things multiple times a week. And all my life, I've struggled with just feeling dumb. When I was in school, like, I failed so hard in classes. I was, like, breaking records on how I, I could <laughs> fail. And, I, and it's, in God's strange irony, he has me in roles where I'm actually teaching a lot. And... Sometimes I struggle with insecurity. Up until a few years ago, um, I only had a GED. That was my highest education. And so what I do is I I remix the Psalms. I'll I'll build a Psalm, I'll read a Psalm, and then I'll kind of remix it from my life. And I have one that I read every time I teach and I pray through this. This is my remix of Psalm 23 here. It says, the Lord is my teacher. I shall not trust in a degree. He knows the good, the true, and the beautiful. He leads me into truth. He is my credential, the letters behind my name. Even though I have a GED in the aristocracy of education, (laughs) I will not fear the ravines of ADD and dyslexia. (laughs) For you guide me, and your words and your ways, they form me. You prepare a desk for me in the presence of PhDs. (laughs) You anoint my head with insight, My library overflows. Surely your wisdom and presence shall follow me into every book, classroom, and complicated subject, and I will dwell in the classroom of the Lord forever. Wow. And what I want to invite you to is, those are just some examples, but what does it look like for you to create these moments of worship, these moments of encountering God in your day? that help re-narrate what you're doing and help you to encounter God. Now, you might say, okay, great. I've got this mental exercise. It's, it's great. It's gonna, it, it might help me out. But aren't we supposed to actually do some stuff? Aren't we supposed to do some things with our hands in the world? And Paul agrees with you. And so the, he moves on. And the next thing that we are we are invited to do is to deploy our gifts, not just re-narrate the mundane, but to, to deploy the gifts that God has given us for the service of others. Romans says, um, starting with verse four, for in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. And then he goes on to name a bunch of gifts, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contribution, generosity, leadership, mercy. He names these things, and he says, all of us have them. They need to be deployed and used. You see, just as 
in the, our, our worship service, we have different people playing different roles, and you can't have one person doing everything. I think if anyone can, it's probably Brandon. Dressed like a 90s mom, he's, he can do all the stuff. Um, he said I could give him a hard time, so. Um, but the reality is we all play a different role as we worship God during the three hours. But the reality is also that during the 165 hours, we all have our role and we need to figure out what instrument we play, what gift we have. Let me make a few observations about spiritual gifts that it's talking about in this passage. Number one is that your gifts are not about your awesomeness, but about God's graciousness. Verse six says, it's according to the grace given to us. And it's, it's not about you. Anything you're able to do ultimately comes from God. Even if you're saying, like, I don't need to pray a bunch. I'm just actually kind of good at this thing. Even your mind, your physical ability, your experiences, all of those are shaped by God. So any gift you have is a gift that is from him, and it's ultimately about his grace, not your awesomeness. Number two is that your gifts are not for you. Your gifts, the gifts God has given you, are not for you. They're for others. It says that we are members of one another. It's called, that we are called to serve God, serve one another, and to serve God's world with these gifts. In other words, God gives us to, them to us because we are the delivery system. We're the UPS driver. They're not for us, but they're for others to serve them. And often, when we talk about spiritual gifts or any sort of like personality test or those sorts of things, there can be this sort of subtle spiritual gift narcissism where it's just endless introspection about the gifts I have and the personality profile and here's what my strengths finder is. And those things are good as long as it's helping you understand yourself so that you can go serve others with the gifts and experiences and abilities that God has given you. He's got this analogy of the body here. He says that we're all like different body parts that are interdependent on one another. We're made to need one another. Like if you ever see a body part that's on its own, separated from the rest of the body, something terrible has happened. <laughs> and in the same way, if you see some gift that's separated from the rest of the body, something terrible has happened. And we can't employ all of the gifts during confined into three hours, but so many of them are made for the 165 outside of this door. Observation number three, that it's not about the list. A lot of times when we read passages like this, we tend to try to get these really precise definitions of what these gifts are. And this is not an exhaustive list, Paul gives lists of spiritual gifts in other places, and he uses different gifts. He's just like giving some examples of the things that the Holy Spirit could empower you to do, not giving this highly specific Marvel superpower that he's given to all of us. And we, we have a tendency to just focus on what's the definition of the thing 
rather than what is the Spirit empowering us for. There's a, th- a few theologians I love. Uh, one, Al Walters, he says that, that the list is not this bound, confined list, but that, that spiritual gifts, these gifts that God has given us, are anything that's empowered by the Spirit, that builds up the church, and serves God's world. So in other words, you could have the spiritual gift of engineering, or nursing, or landscaping. And this really aligns with Ephesians 2.10 that says like, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The language here is of handiwork. Poema is the word for handiwork, from which we get the word poetry. And it's this idea that God, just as a poet labors over the specific wording, God created you with certain gifts and certain experiences and certain abilities, and he empowers those things for particular good works that he made for you. It's not necessarily the specific assignment. We tend to think that every aspect of calling is just a voice from heaven saying, like, go to Scottsdale or something like that. But it's Look at your life and how God has made you, and that is a very good indicator as to what he has made you for. Think about a hammer. Like if you discovered a hammer, and you didn't know what a hammer was for some reason, I don't know why, but like if you looked at it, just by looking at it, you can see the intention of the designer and the things that it was made for and how it's good for some things and not good for other things. Like you wouldn't want to give it to a baby as a toy right? You wouldn't want, to, uh, you wouldn't want to, to, to brush your teeth with it, right? But you could see that it's good for breaking things and nailing nails in. How ridiculous would it be if that hammer spent all of its time saying, which nails was I meant to nail? Where? Is it the nails in Tempe or the nails in Portland or the nails in China? Which nails? Versus just go nail some nails in. That's what you were made to do. And so when Paul in verse 3 invites us to some introspection about your life with, with sobriety and honesty, he's saying, look at your life. Look how God has made you. And then take those gifts he's given and use them. Launch them. Deploy them for the service of others. I'm going to close real quick. I'm going to give you a framework, a little model to help you uh, reflect on how God has made you. It's called a vocation sweet spot. I'll do a podcast about this in a few weeks, but I'm going to go over it quickly here. Just kind of four questions to help discern what God has made you for. And basically anything within that sweet spot there is stuff that you should feel free to push into. So... Really, it asks four questions. What are your abilities? What are you good at? What are your affections? What do you care about? The aches, where do you encounter the brokenness of the world and therefore can help use your gifts to go mend that brokenness? And anchors, what are the realistic limitations, the realistic limiting circumstances of your life? So the first one, what, what am I good at? My abilities. The only barrier to you answering this question is fake Christian humility that says, the only thing I'm good at is sinning. I'm a worm. 
But if God is the one who gave the gift, you can be honest about it because it's not about you. But we can ask, what are we good at? But then the next thing, I'll give an example with my wife on that. She's really good. She's very compassionate, very empathetic. She's very good at bringing order where there's disorder. So she needs to go find disordered places and help bring order. But then the next question is affections. What do I care about? All of us have things that fire us up more or make us sad more inordinately than other people. Pay attention to those things because those could be a, an indicator of the lens that God has given you, the way he's made you to see certain things in the world to move towards. My wife, um, she deeply cares about uh, children and the injustice and suffering that children go through. She also really cares about there being like orderly bureaucracy. Any disordered space really bugs her. If you want an indicator of kind of the unique lens God's given you, just say, what do I get annoyed at the most? And then invert that, and that's probably some passion God's given you. Um, aches, where do I encounter the brokenness of the world? If you're just using your abilities and affections, then you're having a good time in life. Things feel meaningful. But we were made to mend some aspect of the world's brokenness. And with so many broken things in the world, one way to help kind of narrow this is to ask the question, what is the brokenness that you have experienced? Knowing that God often comforts us so that we can be a comfort to others. My wife, um, she when we were navigating the, the special needs systems to get services for our daughter, um, it was very hard and very painful and very complex. But she figured out their bureaucracies. She figured out their stuff, and she said, I'm going to help mend that so more kids get access. Anchors, what are the realistic limiting circumstances of your life? Finances, health, those sorts of things. Like real things that should be considered. What are they? Now you might think like, oh, these are just obstacles for God to overcome, right? But that could be the truth. But also sometimes God uses the limits to narrow us and to focus in a world of unending options. Think about this. The Apostle Paul was really good at planting churches. Agree or disagree? When he was in prison, he was probably thinking, why does God have me here? Doesn't he want me out there planting churches? Well, the reality is he in prison wrote the prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, that every church reads. There's not one church that he planted that's still in existence, but in every church in the world, they read those prison epistles. And God used the limits to focus him in that moment. So... Within that, there are a bunch of things that could be in there and a bunch of things that are excluded. For my wife, she's done many things that fit within the sweet spot. Uh, she's, been, uh, she's walked with friends through grief and suffering. She's helped with refugee resettlement. She did HR for Chick-fil-A. And it all fit within that. And more recently, she's really pressed into starting a nonprofit that does educational advocacy for children with special needs especially those in the foster care system, and she's killing it at it. But all the other things she was doing within that were, were appropriate and had their time as well. 
Now, you wouldn't want her to be a nurse because she passes out at the sight of blood. <laughs> you wouldn't want her to build anything because then people would be in danger. <laughs> uh, if she did the murals out here, it would be stick figures all the way. So I just want to encourage you, if you're pressing into this, instead of waiting for this exact thing to come you know, from the sky, just say, generally, what has God done with me? What are some stuff that fits within this sweet spot? Let me go do that stuff. I'll learn more along the way. And if God clearly speaks and directs somewhere else, I'll do that. But I'm not just going to wait around to, to actually deploy my gifts for the sake of others. So we'll talk more about these things in the podcast. We'll have more resources in weeks to come. But I want to close today just by reminding us that as we leave these doors today and step into the other 165 hours, those are just as much opportunities to worship God as the three that we are in here. We're going to go out and we're going to re-narrate the mundane the overlooked aspects of our life. We're going to look at our gifts and not just have endless introspection, but actually use them to serve. And why do we do this? We do it because Jesus is worthy of every single one of those hours. He died for our sins. He adopted us and brought us to a true father. He rescued us from death. He gives meaning to all of life. He showed us so such amazing love that all other loves fail in comparison. And these are the mercies of God that we've encountered. Therefore, we go out and we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice in the 165 hours that he has given us. Whether it's with our mop in hand or calculator or computer or a spatula, because there are people out there who need to see a worship leader in you and the Jesus who's worthy of worship. Let's pray. God, we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in every office, in every living room, in every hallway, in every car where there's a commute, that there's not one area of life that isn't claimed for you and an opportunity to worship. Show us what it means to worship you in those spaces. Would you be the better voice that narrates the better story? Would you show us the gifts you've given for the sake of giving them to others? And God, we thank you that we get the privilege of worshiping you here gathered now. And we pray that you would meet us in a way that helps us scatter. In Jesus' name, amen. Continue to worship. Let's continue to sing. Let's take communion and celebrate the Jesus who's got so many mercies that he's extended towards us.